Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there in the sort of rack right under, underneath the seat in front of you. The little black hardback books there are Bibles. You'll find this on page 991 of those Bibles. And as you probably saw, as I drew your attention to it, the title of my message is A Wide Angle View of Sex. I figured I would just go ahead and make you blush then rather than now. You know, it was a time when... Uh, we didn't really talk much about sex in the church. You know, that was something just left to discuss at home. And basically what was said at home was, shh, don't talk about that. <laughs> uh, once upon a time. And, and that's actually a, a shame for at least two reasons. In the first place, that we allowed this topic to be framed entirely in negative terms. That's actually quite a shame because God created it and gave it as a wonderful thing. But it's also a shame that uh, in our silence about it as a church, the secular culture framed the conversation in their terms. And we've sort of been playing defense ever since then and being sort of inducted into uh, a secular view of sex and sexuality. And so 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 invites us to take a wider view of the subject and see it from God's perspective. It really just provides a window into something that once we gaze in there, uh, we can see from a wider view. So let's look at this passage together from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. If you're able, I'm gonna ask you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God and also just attention to what He has to say to us in it. Beginning in verse 8, reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, as always, we delight to open the scriptures, and to hear from you, it is our expectation that we will, Lord, that you have something to say to us in it. Father, we acknowledge, too, just our general need to really be more submitted to the authority that you express in your written word. And surely, it would be true that we would discover if we could see entirely ourselves the way that you do, that there are all kinds of ways where we don't do that, that we are not submitted to your authority. And so, Father, would you help us to see more than just what other people need to see? Would you help us to hear more than what we think other people need to hear? 
but that we would see and hear what you have to say to us in your word. And so we ask you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. For this is all yours. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, this uh, few verses here, 8 through 11, is really a continuation of the thought in verses 3 through 7, which we studied last week. If you're just joining us today, it just started a uh, series on First and Second Timothy, so we're just, we're just second week in here. But there are false teachers in Ephesus, and Paul has urged Timothy to remain there to, to confront them and to ensure they don't teach any different doctrine than the one uh, Paul had taught and that Timothy was teaching. Because they're going on about myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations. They're majoring on minor things. They're really not helpful at all to the people of God. And verse 7, um, as that passage concluded, su suggests that uh, these teachings are coming from a warped view of the law. Uh, and, and that kind of thing is still common now, that people... Um, want to find, and I actually mentioned this as a danger last week, but people want to find some new angle, some new way of reading the scriptures and interpreting them or whatever, some new insight, and people are real fascinated and infatuated with that kind of thing and attracted to it. And so they've, they've, they've got this sort of warped view of the law, and out of that, they're teaching these just endless genealogies and myths and things that just aren't that helpful. It says they want to be teachers of the law. They don't understand the law. They don't even understand the things they're saying, Paul says, out of the law. And so then verses 8 through 11 that we just read elaborate on part of what it is those teachers don't understand about the law, namely that the law is for the unjust, not the just. So followers of Jesus have been counted as just, as righteous before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness and our faith in him. Okay? We're not, in and of ourselves, just and holy. Did you know that, or am I just informing you? Okay, all right, because that, that would have been awkward if you didn't already know that. But we're, we're not, in and of ourselves, we've been countered as, as that. But, but the gist of what Paul is saying is that the law, this, over, this, this heavy emphasis on the law, just is misdirected when it's directed at the believer in Jesus. That that's not the path to righteousness for us, obeying a whole bunch of external rules and regulations. And we've been set free from that law. Now, it does guide the believer in living a holy life. It points out what sin is. It points out our own sin. It points us to our need for Jesus. It has value but not in a, as a path to righteousness. So in other words, the person who comes teaching a, a bunch of law to Christian, it, it's just totally in the wrong ballpark. It's like the person, it's like when you go out uh, and you can't, you go out of the shopping mall, you can't find your car because you exited the wrong side of the mall, right? And you're just totally in the wrong parking lot and you can't find your car. This is sort of the message of what Paul is saying, is that these teachers are teaching something that's just totally in the wrong place. This, this law emphasis um, in the community of faith. That's kind of the gist of what verses 8 through 11 are, are really about. 
But in the course of making this point, he makes some really revealing assumptions about what is immoral according to the law. And he presents here what is sometimes referred to as a vice list. And, and these kinds of lists are fairly common in Paul. Uh, they show up in several different places. None of the lists are identical um, they, because they just provide examples depending on the context of what he's actually mentioning uh, sort of more fully, that he just provides examples of things that are unrighteous behaviors or unrighteous dispositions, and that's true here. These are just examples um, of how God's law is violated. But I preached a series on the Ten Commandments a few months ago, and uh, so, so I've just recently addressed all of the topics that are touched on here in this passage. And they're all relevant. They are all relevant to believers still, as I just mentioned, in sort of pointing us, pointing out our sin, pointing us to Jesus, helping us live a righteous life. They're relevant to Christians also in that we're all guilty of violating all of them. So they're not just something we want to be sure, uh, as I prayed, to point out that are relevant to other people. They're relevant to us in, in those ways too. But sexual immorality and homosexuality are the only items on the list that many people would argue don't belong on the list. Many people in our culture today, and even within professing Christianity, would argue either they don't belong on the list, they don't belong entirely on the list, we need to add qualifications or conditions to that. In fact, some would insist not particularly Christians, but some would insist, take them off the list. Take that out of the whole category of morality and don't speak of it that way. That's kind of the climate we live in today. And so, because it is that way, it, because it is sensitive, because it is volatile, and because there are Christians who are unsure even how to think about this issue, I want to I focus on the issue rather than avoid it. Seem good? <laughs> uh, so my, my, and really part of the reason I say, because, because one of the risks of doing this here is that somebody said, well, yeah, why did you, why you single out that issue? Here's a whole list of them, why you single out that one? And I single it out for reasons I just said. It's, it's, prominence, it's prominence in our sort of cultural conversation. And because the regard people have for it to say, that doesn't belong on your vice list. Who are you to call it immoral? It's because it's in those categories uh, that I'm dressing. So I, I wanna try to provide a big picture view or sort of a wide angle view that as I said earlier, this, this passage just sort of opens a window for us to look into and as we look into it, we could see the issue from a little bit of a wider angle. So I'll add a, a, just a, a few qualifications here um, or disclaimers. Number one, I can't address this subject exhaustively in one sermon. So, so I may even raise questions that I don't answer, but certainly the subject raises questions that I can't answer all of today. I just, just can't address it exhaustively in one sermon. Um, but hopefully, I will, I will address it clearly. <laughs> I'm not promising that, but that's certainly my goal. I'm not trying to address it exhaustively. I am trying to say what I say clearly. The second disclaimer I would make, and if I could just be really frank about this, if you, 
If you want to approach the Bible to find justification for what you've already decided to believe, you will find it. Okay, so if, you already, if you've already settled your view on this subject or any other, and then you want to go to the Bible to find support for your view, you'll find it. Not tr- it might not be true what you've found, but you, could, you can find justification for it. If you, if you approach the Bible like it's sort of uh, case law, you go digging through the law to find l- little, little pieces of evidence to support your position as if you're going to argue your case before a jury, you'll find it. But you're not, we're not arguing our case before the jury. But, but my point is simply to say, um, I'm, not, I'm not really out to convince people who are sort of resolutely committed to another viewpoint. That's really not my purpose here. And if you're, if you're intent on just finding justification in the scriptures for your own view, you'll find it. The, the other thing I'd say is if you, if you really sincerely want to know how the Bible represents this issue. I'm going to do my best to show you that. So I, I, want, to, I want to try to address the what and the why here. Um, the what, what sexual activity is on the vice list here in this passage. And then from sort of the wide angle view, why is it there? Okay, the what, what's on the list? Why is it there? And, and I, I'll mention uh, even within Christ, the Christian community, there are objections on both levels. In other words, there are people who say, no, it doesn't really mean that. And there's really nothing wrong with it. So let's unpack it that way. Number one, I I should have said before too, at at the very introduction, I'm sort of slipping into teacher mode more than preacher mode here today. Uh, There's one other passage, at least one other passage in 1 Timothy where I'll do this um, because it's most important that I try to communicate um, clearly uh, rather than sort of just declare a thus saith the Lord kind of thing. This is just the nature of the topic. So, so the que- first question, what is prohibited? Well, it says here uh, sexual immorality and homosexual activity. Here it actually mentions, rather than the activities, it mentions the people who commit those acts. That's, a, that's again, the context of what he's addressing here. And there are two Greek words uh, that I'll mention to you. I don't usually make it uh, a point to say, here's what the Greek words are. I think they're helpful and even necessary in this case. But the two Greek words used there to refer to the sexually immoral and men who, who uh, practice homosexuality, the first word is pornois. And you may hear in that the root of where we get our word pornography. It's used uh, just to refer to a broad range of things. Extramarital or premarital sex is used to refer to prostitution in the larger Greek uh, culture. Any other illegitimate sexual activity. And again, illegitimate according to biblical terms or as the term is used in the larger Greco-Roman culture, it'd be illegitimate according to those moral standards, whatever they are. Pornos would be used to refer to uh, that set of things. It's sexual immorality broadly, and it is less disputed than the other word. Okay, again, there are people 
who, who are largely of the mind, what's wrong with it if it doesn't hurt anybody? Who is anybody to tell me? Oh, you know, or, or what's wrong with it if it's sort of between two people who love each other and committed to whatever? Um, but generally, this is less disputed than the other. The other Greek word is arsenokoitis, which you don't need to know how to spell or write down or even remember. Uh, but I'll, I'll say a few things that are necessary about this because this is one of the things that's uh, been obscured or, or one of the things that creates some uh, question, uncertainty, and even um, conflict about. It's translated here as men who practice homosexuality. It's an unusual word even in the New Testament. It shows up a couple of times, only a couple of times in the New Testament. And in fact, it appears to be a word that's coined by Paul. It doesn't show up anywhere, uh, whether in the scriptures or, or otherwise in Greek, prior to that. And so some have suggested that, hey, this word actually refers to some kind of exploitive or abusive kind of activity because of what was prominent in Roman culture uh, would have been like, you know, men with boys and just different kinds of things of sort of some kind of uh, dominance or exploitation and this sort of thing. Um, so in other words, that, hey, that word doesn't mean what it means now. So it's misleading to talk about it. That's one of the uh, sort of allegations. But that's not the case, that it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means, okay? It's taken from two Greek words. This, this, the first word, arson, means uh, man. And the koitas, or koitais, uh, here in this particular, it, it, the ending is different depending on how it's being used in Greek. But that, that's the word for bed. And, and where Paul actually comes up with that word, how he, he coins the word, is when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, sort of little parentheses here, the, the Old Testament is written Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek, by and large. There's some Aramaic in there too, but by and large, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, but the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek along the way. You tracking with me there? Okay. When the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, in translating the, uh, the book of Leviticus, where it refers to, you, you, if you've read through the Bible, you know the phrase like, where it forbids um, a man who lies with a man as with a woman. You may have heard that phrase. And it for, forbids a number of things, lying with anybody but your wife, actually, is what that list in Leviticus says. But it uses that phrase, if a man lies with a man, as with a woman. And the man and lying with come from these two words, arson, coites. What Paul does is he just takes them and coins a term to refer to somebody who does that. That is to say, it means what it sounds like it means. It means what all the translations, I shouldn't say all the translations, there have been some who have rendered it differently. Um, but it, it, it means a man uh, who practices homosexuality. That's what the word means. 
And as I said, there are, there, are, there are people who will try to make it seem as if the Bible is unclear on this point because the, the, the attempt is to say, hey, this is just a Paul thing, all right? And it's just a weird word that Paul uses, and so let's see if we can sort of pull that aside and just kill it or erase it so this is sort of a non-issue or at least it's not clear what he's talking about. Uh, it's quite clear. That's the what is prohibited, sexual immorality and um, homosexuality. The second question I said I would answer is, or address at least, I want to answer it uh, completely, is why are they prohibited? And here's where we, we sort of can begin to take the wide-angle view. Because again, the, the, way, the way this is disputed is by saying, uh, well, that's not really what Paul means, and or this is just kind of a Pauline thing. Like Paul has just put this on a list of things that uh, he forbids. Jesus didn't even mention it, um, that this is somehow isolated and we can sort of obscure it or eliminate it somehow if we set it apart that way. But again, that's not the case simply because of how it is even being used here and how it's connected to the bigger story um, of God's plan even for mankind. So there's so really two reasons I'm going to offer here for why are they, why are they prohibited and why, why are they prohibited for us today? Why does that apply in exactly the way it sounds like it applies? Uh, well, the first is because it's a violation of the Ten Commandments. This is not just a violation of something that Paul introduces out of thin air, but it's a violation of the commandments. In other words, um, the, uh, there's a long-standing moral law of God that he revealed that reveals something of his character and nature, actually, and what's good for humankind. But it's a long-standing statement of what is moral according to God himself. And, and Paul actually walks through most of the whole second table of the law, commandments five through nine, and gives examples of people who violate those commandments. So I ask uh, Jim if you can put uh, the first, um, yeah, first chart up there. So you'll see here, in other words, this is the way it's constructed in this passage, is the things he is naming in, in verses nine and 10 are violators of the commandments. You see them right in order, right? Command number five. Commandment number five says, honor your father and mother. The first violation he mentioned are those who strike their parents. Now, not everybody, I mean, uh, people who strike their parents are not the only people who violate uh, the fifth commandment, right? You can dishonor your parents in lots of other ways besides striking your parents. But those who strike their parents do violate the fifth commandment. Commandment number six, don't murder. Violators are murderers. Commandment number seven, do, do not commit adultery. The violators are the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. Number eight, uh, do not steal. The violators here, it says, are enslavers. They're men stealers. People who kidnap people and sell them into slavery. And then commandment number nine, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. He says violators of that are liars and perjurers. 
Okay. Now, the, the, the point here is to, is to illustrate um, that, that Paul is just giving examples of how the commandments are violated. Examples of the kinds of people, if you will, who because he, 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 he describes them in those terms, not just the activity, but those who commit them is kind of the way he's phrased this. And it's important because if we, if we let the scripture do the talking, we can't simply pass it off as something that was isolated to Paul's letters or that was obscure or unclear in some way. Um, what he says here is that the commandment against adultery is violated in a number of ways, including sexual immorality and homosexuality. And sexual immorality would include all kinds of things in our culture. It would include pornography, which is absolutely prolific, uh, out of control, and destructive beyond our understanding at this point. And, and what, what it'll take by the grace of God to ever reel that in and the damage it's done, uh, who even knows? But we're, we're a sex-saturated culture. There's all kinds of images we're so exposed to all the time, we're not even sensitive to them. Even, even in the church, this is true of believers all across the board. But in other words, the, 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 the violation of, uh, um, of the commandment against adultery is, is very far-reaching. It's not just about married people. It's, it's very far-reaching. As the, command, as the violation of other commandments are as well. So that's the, that's the, the first uh, sort of why is what Paul's mentioned as forbidden here is connected to the Ten Commandments, the law of God. But by making the connection to the law of God, it's actually connected to God's original design for humankind. God's good purposes for humankind. Now, we, we unpacked that a little bit in our series on the Ten Commandments. Um, but the law always gives us a window into the nature of God and his plans for humanity. Let me remind you um, of something I mentioned there if you were, if you were here for, for that series. Uh, but there's a verse in Leviticus that says, and it's elsewhere too, but God said, be holy because I am holy. Remember that? The basis of holiness, the basis of moral goodness is the goodness of God. He didn't just arbitrary, arbitrarily declare some things good and other things bad. But they are good because he is good. It's the basis of holiness, okay? According to scripture. The second thing is in Deuteronomy, when the Ten Commandments are given for the second time, they've been wandering in the wilderness, getting ready to go in the promised land. He reminds them, it's read for the second time, and he says, uh, when you go into the land, be sure to do these things so that it may go well with you. That in a fallen world, God sort of gives a map to the people of God to say, here's where, here's where the landmines are. Don't step on the landmines. Do it my way that it might go well with you. So the, the law, the commandments, uh, reveal something to us about the character and nature of God, 
and about his good purposes for humanity. That's always true. And so in a real summary fashion, I want to just sort of narrate that to you. So I'm, we're, we're, by connecting from Paul to law and then to creation, I, I'm really trying to widen the lens here to say, here's, here's, what we ought to, here's everything that ought to be on the screen when we're thinking about issues of morality. That we don't look at them individually and in isolation, but we see the wider view of how God thinks about these things. And so here's kind of the story. In the, in the beginning, he created man and woman. He gave them to each other in complementary relationship. So the two become one flesh. There would be unity in diversity in a way that reflects even the Godhead itself, who's one God and three persons in perfect unity. But he gave them in complementary relationship to each other. And the very first commandment he gave in the whole Bible is be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over all of creation, dot, dot, dot. Okay? In other words, reproduce and rule. That's the first commandment God gives to mankind. This is before the fall. This is his good plan. He gives them to each other. It's not good that man is alone. Complementary relationship with the purpose of reproducing and ruling. And then sex is given as a means to those ends and a good means, by the way. It's a pleasure to obey that command. And this is by his design. This is why I say it's a shame that we, we allowed, the church allowed, um, this to be, the, the whole subject to be framed in negative terms because it's not negative at all. It's wonderfully good within its boundaries that he's established. But it's given to encourage reproduction and rulership. That's his, that's his plan. Make other little rulers because humans were to, were to be co-rulers with God on the earth. And see, then after the initial sin of Adam and Eve and then generations of pursuing our own interests rather than his. See, this is again what's, what's really necessary to understand from a big picture is what is what happened in the beginning. We are, we are created, man created for the purpose of ruling with God, of establishing his rule on the earth. And that in the wake of sin, what we did is we pursued our own interests and our own pleasures rather than deriving pleasure from seeking his interests. That's a, that's a critical difference, isn't it? See, after generations of that, actually hundreds of years of that, he, he reveals the law on Mount Sinai. It's added, the scripture tells us in Galatians 3, because of transgression. God initially made a covenant with Abraham. He just said, walk before me and be blameless. He didn't give him a whole list of things. But the farther we get downstream, departed from God, pursuing our own interests, the more seared the heart and conscience of human, humans become. He reveals law within that fallen 
context, which still tells us, do it this way, and this is good for you. So what is moral? What is morally good is good because it reflects something of him and therefore our pursuit of it is glorifying to him. And in turn, it is good for us. Now, our, our culture, of course, wants to greatly expand the boundaries. That's where God has established them within the context of marriage. Sex is good there. It's good in the context where one gives him and herself to the other. I said one time, uh, a message long, a long time ago, I don't even remember the context, but love gives and lust takes. And in the context of marriage where one gives to the other, uh, sex is a good thing. When sex becomes about taking from another for the sake of my own pleasure, uh, it goes awry and it goes awry fast. And see, so the, the culture wants to expand uh, the boundaries widely and basically say as long as it's consensual, it's okay. Right? I mean, that's kind of how it's defined. And so, so you've got people who are able to give consent, they're old enough to give consent or whatever, then it's okay. And I would just tell you, uh, the Christian must not accept those terms. They must not accept those as the redefined boundaries because God established different boundaries. And because it's ultimately a destructive arrangement, I want to conclude with this illustration here. Um, we've camped uh, often, as I've shared before, in, in uh, national parks. Some of you have maybe visited national parks too, or you visit other places where this is true. You can light a campfire um, in the fire ring. Right? There's, in, in, in the cases where we go, there's a little metal fire ring. Sometimes there's stones around it. You may light a fire there, but you may not light a fire outside of there. And see, I, I can't just say, well, who are you to tell me? Light it within the fire ring. This is my campsite. I light. As long as I keep it within my campsite, it's fine. So I'm going to burn the bush over here. And as long as I keep it within my campsite, you ought not to have anything to say with, uh, to me about it. But you can't keep it within your campsite because you can't keep the wind from blowing the flames onto the brush and the leaves and the dead limbs and all the other kind of stuff. And listen, if everybody in the campground does that, it'll be no time before the whole forest is on fire. And I would, say, I would suggest to you uh, this is exactly what has happened with our culture regarding sex and sexuality. It's the reason why um, there's abuse, sexual abuse. Again, it, it hits right home. We don't need to look outside the church. It, hits, it strikes home bad enough in the church. But the sexual abuse, um, you know, all, all manner of maladies that have come from that. I won't even go down the list. But the wreckage from it is it's, it's like a forest fire that's out of control. We can't even 
we, we can't even put it out. I mean, the damage pornography has done is really just being scientifically um, discovered and understood. I mean, it's, there's some stuff coming out about what that's done to rewire the brain. 20-something-year-old men who are, are impotent because their whole brain is conditioned to be aroused by images on the screen rather than real life. I mean, it's tragic stuff. And, and, and here's what I'm saying we need to understand. Sex will not behave. Sex will not behave or obey us. We cannot as a society redefine its boundaries and then expect it to stay within the campfire. It'll light the whole forest on fire. And that's exactly what we're getting. Now, uh, I'll, I'll sort of rein that all back in to say, you know what? We need to be concerned as a church with ourselves in the church. I mean, let's, uh, let's, let's deal with our own issues first rather than worrying about how the unbelieving world regards sex and its boundaries. We, we don't need to work so hard to define them for, th- define them for them when we've got major problems within the house of God. But the point is just to say, this is how the Bible frames the issue, beloved. Depending on your age, uh, the older you are, the likely, I didn't need to say all that because you already believed it. Um, The younger you are, the, the greater the likelihood you've found some of the other arguments, the alternative arguments more persuasive. And, and all, all I, I hope to do here is to say, if we take the wide-angle view, we'll see the, the, the Bible just doesn't really allow us to go there. If you set out to find justification for a position you already hold, you'll find it. Um, but if you want to know how God speaks about that and thinks about that, he's provided boundaries for sex, for sex and they are good for us and good for the purposes he has for us on this earth. Will you close with me in prayer? Lord, thank you as always for your word. And this is uh, indeed a sensitive topic. It is one that gets people um, upset and in, in some cases for understandable reasons. There is so much that cannot be said here, Lord. And, um, God, I pray that just by your grace, you would, you would cover that very fact that, that what can't be said and the questions that, that are, are left outstanding here, um, that you would in due time uh, direct people to the conversations and resources and, and otherwise that would allow them uh, to have those questions addressed. But Lord, we want to be a people that love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we are holy and blameless before you, a a bride presented to you on the last day, spotless. And so, Lord, would you reveal to us personally um, how we need to be more purified in our own thinking and our own television watching and internet browsing and, um, and meditations of our heart and all kinds of other th- ways, Lord. 
show us what we need to know about ourselves, um, how we need to respond to that, and how we can pray for others in light of our understanding of what it is to struggle and fail. Father, would you, would you um, dismiss us, God, uh, with the assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even as we stumble and fail in this area. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.